O. Jackson, whose compassion has no end. Or beginning. <laughs> I can't look at him and not see Superman. And then Russell was like, I'm gonna shoot the f- shit out of this. And then Jonathan Hall was like, I got you, babe. I got you. Yeah, like a medieval morning star. But you know, for babies. Maybe it would have been what, you know, pushed Peter to the other side. Peter would have like realized that he was in love with Chris. And... Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by... Melissa Mullis. And Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season two, episode one, Omega. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The beta section is for first timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't wanna be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives, like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. This week's new Alpha Patron Howlout goes to Katie Connolly. Thanks for supporting the show. Our episode this week is Omega, written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. After Chris threatens Scott's life, Scott and Allison have to keep their continued relationship a secret. Plagued by frightening hallucinations, Lydia flees the hospital and goes missing. Though Styles is frantic to find her, Jackson is preoccupied with his own problems, namely that his body seems to be rejecting the werewolf bite. After Jackson says he doesn't want to be in the pack, Derek meets Isaac, who is in the same class as the others and whose life is dominated by his abusive father. A new group of Argents come to town for Kate's funeral, led by Allison's grandfather, Gerard. Angered by Kate's death, he abandons the hunter's code and declares war on the werewolves of Beacon Hills. Our favorite quote from this week's episode comes from Coach Finstock when he says, now it's supposed to get below 40 degrees tonight. And I don't know about you, but the last time it was that cold and I was running around naked, I lost a testicle to exposure. Now I don't want the same thing happening to some innocent girl. And our honorable mention comes from Jackson when he says, when I was with Lydia, you should have seen the scratch marks she left on me. What do you think she's going to do with a real set of claws? As the episode begins, we see Jackson emerging majestically from the water in an artfully torn shirt that highlights the werewolf bite at his hip. Okay, so we are jumping into season two. And I feel like there was a production meeting and everyone's like, so, hey, you know, we're coming back first episode season two. How are we going to do it? And then Russell was like, I'm going to shoot the shit out of this <laughs> and then everyone's like yep mm-hmm, 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 yep and jonathan meeting hall, adjourned <laughs> meeting adjourned and jonathan hall was like i got you bae i got you this shot's amazing like these first like just this first shot is just like like literal theatrical film quality shooting like i feel like you could start this episode and be like oh did i put in last of the mohicans or something 
you know, where you're just like, wow. I feel like I'm watching a clone commercial, but like in a really <laughs> good way. Like, you know, the one of the really fancy ones where they right. put like Natalie Portman, Keira Knightley in it. He's over there advertising for Armani. So the right, the 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 fashion films. Gotcha. Right. Basically. Yeah. It's so beautiful. He he looks like a carved merman. Yes, he does. I actually think that uh Colton Haynes did do an ad. Do you guys remember whenever we were in um like at, for a clone or something? Or maybe it was a clothing brand. Remember when we used to go to Hollywood? Um, I was just thinking of We used to go to Universal yep. and uh, in City Walk, there was the oh, giant yeah. poster. He does look like he's approaching us, you know, bursting forth from the water so he can sing us to our dooms. And that's okay. I'm not mad about it. Do you guys think that Derek ripped his shirt like this? Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, that was, that was Jackson. Okay. Cause Derek is like, all right, I'm going to bite you. <laughs> ah, and he goes, oh, no, wait, wait, wait. And then he just rips his shirt himself <laughs> and does it perfectly. And then like presents his hip. And he's like, yeah, he's like, it. no, right here. Right here. And then like, I want it. Derek's like, I was just going to bite your arm. No, right here. And that was the first instance when Derek was like, I have made a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel like Derek would have rolled his eyes, but yes, like he just like, okay, whatever gets this over with, I'll do it. Right. But I do think this is stupid. (laughs) Yeah. I think Derek probably also like his uncle Peter is a little bit too far into that sunk cost fallacy. Like I've gotten this far, (laughs) you know, Jackson's asking me for it. I've let my fangs come out, make it very clear. I'm going to give him that bite. Again, I still think it was mostly because Derek doesn't like the idea of being beholden to anyone. So like when Jackson says, basically, you owe me, you have to do this. I feel like he's like, shit, I guess I do. But then I won't owe him anymore. I feel like that was his line of thought. But yeah, he's definitely standing there being like, oh, God. Oh, God. This guy's going to be my beta. (laughs) But then, of course, he doesn't want to be. So yeah, I think Derek also felt like, you know, unlike Peter, I mean, Peter does give Styles a choice, but... I think he wanted his first beta to be someone who actually like consented to being bitten. And Jackson was really easy there because he actually showed up to his door being like, bite me. But the I, yeah, this scene is beautiful, not just because Jackson looks beautiful, although he does, but there's that reflection of the moon in the water. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's just a beautiful scene, just beautifully done. And it, it's great. I think it's a great way to introduce us into the second season because it puts us in an exact time and place. Although there is kind of a time jump, uh, I feel like going into the next sequence with Scott running through the woods. But it's like, you remember how the last season ended? We are moments after that. And then there's the CG bats and the shots of Scott running on all fours. Hey, we've only got one more season of this and then it's all gone. We never have to see that again. But on the plus side, Scott's hair is a lot better. Yes, I think. Have to get- In a flashback, Chris catches Allison and Scott together and threatens Scott with a gun which is a severe overreaction, if you ask me. And Allison swears to him that she will stop seeing Scott forever. The flashback is filmed strangely. Did you guys think so? I I, I just felt like it was really unlike Teen Wolf. 
Yes, I have many questions and it definitely feels like someone else shot this. Like maybe this was a pickup, like maybe they had a cut of the first episode and thought they needed something to kind of emphasize the tension between the Argents or the Ar- specifically Chris and Victoria Argent uh, towards Scott. And like this was shot by someone else. But yeah, it just doesn't feel like Team Wolf at all. We do a lot of handheld on. I mean, we do handheld on the show, but it just doesn't look like that kind of handheld i think there's like a couple of snap zooms in at certain points and there's that that like that dolly shot wrapping around the car it almost feels like a poor man's bullet time shot it just feels like someone else shot this like this wasn't done by russell or tim and like it doesn't even look like it was lit by jonathan hall now granted i could be completely wrong and it was all there the entire time and that's exactly what they wanted to do but listeners keep an eye out when you're doing your rewatch there is another scene There's one more scene later so far in the season that I've watched that has a couple of snap zooms in it. And just like, where's this coming from? What what are we, what are we doing? Even I don't really associate Teen Wolf with Handicam much. Yeah. I mean, there, I guess maybe there's a little bit, but like Teen Wolf style is very big and cinematic. Mm -hmm. You know, it has a very, a, a highly polished, highly choreographed, feel that's very different from the feel of the scene which it's much more sort of guerrilla filmmaking just like running around the car with a handy cam and zooming in and zooming back out and you know it it's a very different style it feels yeah I kind of thought it looked like a like a late 90s indie drama with the like slightly desaturated colors Mm -hmm. and the sort of frenetic pace around the car that was the vibe that I got yeah or an artsy music video but also from the 90s. I, yeah. I could see like that. Fiona well. Apple is in that car singing yeah. in the backseat as this is all plays out around. Alice, it's been a bad, bad girl. <laughs> I, I also thought it was strange because it's the only scene in this episode where we get a flashback. Now, usually Teen Wolf, if they're doing flashbacks, it's usually throughout the episode. Like they'll tell stories in flashback. Yeah, like a runner. We're getting a lot of different scenes. Yeah, Yeah. like a runner. It feels like an afterthought. So I just wonder if they thought we need to, yeah, really emphasize her parents are not here for Allison dating this werewolf. That's okay, because you know what does fit? Our awesome opening title sequence that comes right after that. And it is just absolutely amazing. Dino just destroyed it. I feel like, you know, Jeff was like, hey, Dino, we're going to do an opening title sequence. And Dino was like, I got you. I know exactly what I want to do. And then turned it in and everyone was like, well, that's it. Our job is done. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just so it's so cool. It's like, in, I think we've mentioned this in the past, but it's instantly iconic. Like you just hear that first dun dun and you know exactly what it is and you know where you are and it just, it hypes you up for the show. Like it hypes you up for the rest of the episode. Like you get pumped watching it. And then of course, all the visuals on top of it, like we have just amazing visuals every single season. So this is not a spoiler, but listeners moving forward, each season has the same theme song, the same theme piece of music, but the opening visuals change every time they're all kind of connected to the season that you're actually in. So you kind of get hints of what the story is going to be in the opening titles, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, which was really cool. So I I was kind of disappointed when they switched to something a little more conventional in season six, but. Yeah, yeah, not fun. You know, it was fun though, getting to spray down Tyler Posey with bottles of Aquafina uh, (laughs) for some of those shots. 
And when Colton like rams into the back of Tyler, those are two shots composited together. And for the Tyler shot, I'm spraying him down with water bottles. And then for the Colton shot, I'm holding just a big pad and he's running into me. Oh, that was you? That was me. And So um, lucky. I would love to be rammed. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite the experience. And when Lydia like disappears into blackness, she's just, that's just the way it was shot. And like, I'm just, you don't see me because of the, the exposure, but I'm just back there making sure she doesn't run into a wall. So basically she would just kind of walk back and I would stop her. So she wasn't being pulled by anything? Nope. She's just moving backwards and they just shot yeah, it in she's slow good motion. At her job. Very good. Yes, and um Tyler doing his roar in with all the the ashes of his family coming off his body. That was like baby powder and stuff. And he was standing in like a kiddie pool that I bought oh at Toys R Us. And um, yeah, I have, I have pictures from all this. We'll, we'll put this up on our Instagram. But Colton, like in his outfit, doing the lacrosse thing, that's him just jumping on a, a little baby trampoline Shut against up. the black. Yeah, yeah. He would just jump up, do it, and then come down. Yeah. Please tell fantastic. me that you have like images of Colton like yeah. doing his, doing that thing on a little baby trampoline. I sadly don't. Oh. Oh, well. Though still convalescing in the hospital, Lydia has at least healed enough to be awake and walking on her own. Her father tries to help her, which only makes her more irritable. Styles also awkwardly hangs around outside her hospital room, occasionally dozing off and talking in his sleep with mortifying results. I don't love this bit with Styles. I realize that it's just for laughs, and I guess I'm just like a buzzkill or something, but... They have him, like, clearly having a sex dream about Lydia. They never say it was Lydia. It could be about Derek. Okay, it was definitely about Lydia, and it's gross. I do not like it. They, they never am. actually say who it's about or what body parts are involved, is all I'm saying. That is accurate. They do not. He's just saying, you're dirty, and you first. Oh, me first? Derek is dirty. He's usually covered in blood. That's true. He's imagining the opening credits and he sees Derek in the ash. He's like, you're dirty. (laughs) Derek is covered in blood and ashes all the time. Like, (laughs) he probably did say. And he'd be like, I'll scrub your bag. And he's like, and Derek in his dream was like, you first. He's like, oh, me first? Okay. That's that's why he was dreaming. <laughs> wow, this is really not the direction I thought this conversation was going to take, but frankly, I'm not mad at it because all of that is way less creepy than him having a sex dream about Lydia while she's like still healing from a gaping wound. Despite their promise, Scott and Allison just start seeing each other secretly. I'm so glad that Will's mom got the bed they're making out on. Okay, it's not the mattress. It's just the bed frame <laughs> itself. But she loves it. She absolutely loves it. Yes, That's listeners, a true fact to you guys. That's true fact, listeners. My mom has Allison's bed. She loved it when she watched the show. She, my mom was a huge fan of the show. Loves the show. And she was like, Allison's bed's really awesome. Do you think I could get it? And I was like, oh. Let me ask. And so I asked Jeff, I was like, are we going to do something with like Allison's bed? And he was like, no. Can I have it? He goes, sure. That was the end of that. Of course, Scott and Allison are going to start seeing each other. They are horny in love high schoolers. It's Romeo and Juliet. You're going to, you know, whatever your parents tell you not to do, you're going to do. You should have yeah. maybe read that play. Yeah. Got to get it all the way through to the end. Yep. I heard it. I, I read about half of it, but I heard it ended just fine. So was- they heard Tay Tay sing about it and they were like, it's going to be fine. What's a Tay Tay? Taylor Swift. Wow, you are so old, Grandpa Will. 
So this leads to some close calls, including one where Victoria comes into Allison's room without knocking and nearly catches Scott. Allison sarcastically asks if her mother would like to perform a full body cavity search, which she shouldn't even suggest because Victoria might say yes. Terrifying thought. Still at the hospital, Lydia takes a shower, but it is not a sexy shower. No, it's a realistic shower in that there's actual showering going on. But I feel like there's a lot of water imagery in this episode, which is interesting. So while in the shower, Lydia hallucinates that the tub has filled with murky water and the drain is clogged with massive clumps of hair. This scene strikes me as very Japanese horror. Yeah. Actually, like the whole water imagery is very prominent in a lot of Asian horror films. Yeah. I mean, the grudge is like sort of the obvious one here because of the the shots of, yeah, the dark water. Dark water. Well, oh yeah, dark water. Dark right. water, the movie. Dark water, yeah. the movie, yeah. <laughs> yes. Lydia's hallucination worsens with a burned arm reaching up from the depths and grabbing her. She panics and runs away from the hospital. In the distance, Scott hears her scream. Are you actually going to do something to help Scott? Or are you just going to go home and go to bed like you did whenever Derek got shot? And he specifically overheard the hunters talking and saying he has 48 hours. So he actually had more information than Derek had. And he was like, eh, I'm tired. <laughs> it's past my bedtime. It's cool tomorrow. <laughs> but unfortunately, he does not have the option to shirk the responsibility this time because Styles brings Lydia's hospital gown to Scott so he can track her by scent. Allison joins them in the Jeep after she sees her father and other hunters form a search party or perhaps a hunting party, to go after Lydia. Stiles wonders whether the Argents would actually kill Lydia if she is turning into a werewolf, but Allison doesn't know. All her family will tell her is that they'll talk after Kate's funeral when the others arrive. What others? Allison doesn't know that either. Yeah, her family doesn't communicate very well. No. No. Secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets secrets hurt someone. Secret secrets hurt someone. Thank you, stripper. I feel like most characters on this show could stand to hear that little rhyme. There would be no show. (laughs) (laughs) There would be no show. And that is one of my biggest pet peeves. No, let let me rephrase. That is my biggest storytelling pet peeve. When characters don't tell other characters information because the writer needs there to be drama. Scott looks really funny with his head out the window, though, guys. He looks like my doggos whenever (laughs) we're driving. He does the wind in his hair. And he's like, no, no, no. Oh, no, no. Take a left. Take a left up here. And the the Jeep veers. And then Styles is is like, no, this is the way to the dog park, Scott. Jesus. God. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, at the local cemetery, a boy named Isaac Leahy works a grave digging vehicle before it's knocked over by an unseen assailant. A human shaped figure digs into a grave while Isaac hides in an otherwise empty grave only to be found by Derek Hale, who offers him help. You know, I would totally sign up for Derek's pack. And also the show makes me realize maybe I should have been trolling for guys in the local cemetery when I was in high school, because apparently that's where the hot dudes hang out. You didn't learn that from Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Gross. Point made. (laughs) (laughs) That's where Buffy meets all her hotties. That's true. I trust the werewolves of Beacon Hills a lot more than I trust the vampires of Sunnydale. That is so valid, though. Yeah, <laughs> that is like, that is correct. Okay, there's Peter, but like mm, all those vampires of Sunnydale. Shame right, I, Peter's more like the odd one out, whereas like yeah. 
the good one is the odd one out on Buffy. Supers in Southern California are not great, but all the supers in Northern California are pretty great. There you go. We'll, we'll use some inductive reasoning there. Finally, Scott follows Lydia's scent to the Hale House, where Lydia has never been before. And he lets Styles lead the way, one of the humans. God, Scott, really? What are you doing here? Allison wonders whether Lydia is drawn to Derek instinctively since he would be her alpha. Scott says that werewolves are stronger in packs. Literally, being in a pack makes werewolves stronger, faster, and generally better in every way. In other words, harder, better, faster, stronger. He also adds that it would make Derek stronger as the alpha. And he sounds pretty negative about that thought, given the number of times Derek saves his ass. Indeed. Yeah, Scott would be so dead at this point if not for Derek. Oh, he'd he'd be dead so many times over. He would be a murderer first, who then would also himself be murdered. Yep. (laughs) exactly what would happen. Before they can discuss further, Styles activates a tripwire that ensnares Scott and leaves him hanging upside down, which does not make any sense at all because Styles tripped it, but it was Scott who got strung up in the background. If Styles had been alone, the tripwire would have done nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't care about logic. I still love this bit. <laughs> I, I mean, me too. It's funny. Anytime something happens to someone in the background while no one else is paying attention, it's it's classic. It's great. But Coffee this gold. makes no sense. Like, at all. I feel like the hunter who did this should be fired. Like, because, you know, the Argents are about to show up, and I kind of feel like Argent's in the background, like, kind of watching. He's just like, oh, Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) He's just like, damn it. So, yeah. Allison and Styles have just enough time to hide before Chris comes to check on the track. I do like that Scott tells them not to get him down and just to go hide while they still have time. Is it because Allison was there? Probably. Definitely. But still. Had she not been there, he would have pulled Styles in front of him. Styles, save me. Styles, protect me with your life body. He wouldn't need to ask because Styles would have already done it. That's true. That's true. But with Allison there, I feel like, you know, he was there trying to make sure Allison didn't get caught because he's a good bro. Best bro. (laughs) (laughs) While Scott hangs around, a handsome gentleman saunters up to him. It's Chris Argent rocking a turtleneck. It's a tactical turtleneck. (laughs) A tactineck. We meet again, Scott. We've got to stop meeting like this. I do like Arjun's casualness here because he's, you know, he asked him, how are you doing? I do believe he genuinely cares about Scott at some level because he's like, he is a kid. You know, I do feel like they had like a good, you know, the scene from season one when he does offer Scott that beer when he's like, I get it. High school relationships, they burn fast and, you know. Okay, and then he immediately interrogates Scott. You are way too generous to Chris Argent. Chris Argent's a dick. I am saying people are complicated. So Scott, basically. He's Scott over here. Holy Argents are good. Wow. They probably had a reason to kill you. I I am insulted by this. I am, wow. That is not even close to being accurate. Argent, like, okay, I understand he lost his sister, and that sucks. But, like, Derek has lost way more than that. And I feel like the show is, like, does not let Derek get away with anything. Like, when Derek does anything mildly shitty, like, he gets dropped off a building or something. He is, like, (laughs) immediately just, like, severely punished. He's, like, thrown in jail for a week. Exactly, yeah. Like, he, not saying he doesn't make mistakes, but like, oh my God, is he held accountable for all of his mistakes? Yeah. He's, it's like, anytime he does, steps out of line at all, the show's like, guess what? Your spine's broken, Derek. 
I don't think I don't think he's being sincere when he asks how Scott's doing. He asks how Scott's doing because Scott is hanging upside down from a tra- funny. Wire trap that he set with his fellow hunters, and it's funny. And he's like enjoying it a little yeah. bit. He's like, he, "Hey, Scott, what's I'm up? Sure, You're hanging upside down. All the blood's rushing to your head." I'm <laughs> sure Chris did thank Jerry later for messing up that tripwire because it did lead to some fun moments. But I'm just saying. If we didn't have such an intense scene at the beginning of how he threatened Scott. I would maybe agree with you, Will, but it, it, it was very intense. It's it's an intense scene. I mean, he broke a window with his gun, pulled Scott out of the car, and then pushed that gun into his face. I mean, yeah, it, it, and he's a child. Yeah. And yeah. also, if you recall, in the scene you, you mentioned from season one, he says something somewhat genuine and then immediately grills Scott. And I feel like the same is kind of true here. Like, he's like, hey, Scott, how's, this go- how's it going? Is Lydia part of the pack? Like, he, it, it, that is what he does and then no i i agree it like yeah he just is like such a dick so yeah i feel like chris needs to change his outfit though because he's wearing a leather jacket over that turtleneck and you're not part of Derek's leather jacket club chris you haven't been invited that's true so yeah chris spends like one second being casual towards scott and then immediately goes on to talk about how he can barely handle Allison having one supernatural creature in her life, being Scott. He will not tolerate two if Lydia does turn out to be a werewolf. And also in the same scene, he threatens Scott with a hemicorporectomy, which is amputating a person at the waist. Again, he is speaking to a child. Yes, he is very scary, but do you see what blue eyes he has? You could just get lost in those... They are very blue. He's a good looking guy. I think you were saying something threatening to me, but I just got lost in your eyes, sir. Can you say it again? I'm sorry. I was busy writing love you on my eyelids on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Did you you do something super menacing while my eyes were closed? Uh, That's a good Indiana Jones reference. I like that a lot. Thank you very much. I do still think there is sincerity to Chris, even though he's threatening to cut a child in half at the waist. He is sincere about cutting Scott in half. The even though in that sentence was holding so much weight. (laughs) Yes, it was basically the foundation that it was built on. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, yes. Chris is dickish, but I I feel like he is he's he's basically Teen Wolf Darth Vader, okay? Yeah, he's the bad guy, but you know there's good in him. Eh. He's a hunter like his father before him. Ugh. <laughs> who we meet in this episode and he is a major dick. Now that that is very accurate. He's the king dick. The kick. Oh my god. <laughs> I love a good portmanteau, but you you take it will, to the edge. I will portmanteau anything if I can. Oh and I will god. always think it's hilarious. When Chris leaves, Scott manages to get out of the trap by himself and confidently walks towards the Hale House. He should have just walked into another trap. I mean, yeah, it, 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 that's not the tone of this show, but this scene doesn't end with like, it doesn't have a button. This scene, and this isn't like a, I mean, it's an intense scene because of everything that's going on between Scott and Chris, but there's no button to this scene. And I mean, come on, he should have just gone into another trap. <laughs> he should have just been hugging. I would have been, down. I would have really enjoyed that. He's like, hey, you guys coming? And he just exactly. like ends up hanging upside down again. <laughs> it, it just would have been funny. Who left all these rakes here? <laughs> <laughs> 
The next morning, the canine unit searching for Lydia leads the police to the cemetery. Sheriff Stalinski interviews Isaac about the disturbance there the previous night. While they're talking, the sheriff notices that Isaac has a black eye. He asks Isaac about it, but he's evasive, saying he got it at school while playing lacrosse for the Beacon Hills high school team. Buddy, we didn't see you at all last season. Do you even go to the school? He was sitting at the other end of the bench that Siles sat on. I would have loved if they just do like a that episode of Community where Jack Black guest stars on it. And so they like, yeah. have just, <laughs> yeah. like flashbacks so and they just have like separates of him like commenting on what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> I just love like that. But, like with Isaac, yeah. <laughs> Cut from like the first season. He's like, they know we can hear them talking about <laughs> werewolves, right? Yeah. And he's just like, mm, just. Just ignore it. It's not this character's fault they shot them only in singles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been, that would have been really funny. This is our introduction to Isaac's dad. And wow, on the subject of dickish dads, Isaac's dad somehow manages to outdick the dickish dads we already have on the show. And that includes the one that threatened to bisect a child. So that is saying a (laughs) lot. He he does win. And I, I think the thing that makes it so bad is, well, John Wesley Shipp is a very good actor. And so he, he plays Bad Dad very well. But also there's like evidence of it on Isaac's face, you know, that we don't really get that type of thing where it's like, yeah, people get shot and all this type of stuff. But that's like fantastical violence. Right. This is like real. This is like the real. first instance of the sh- on the show. I think of like, this is like real world violence. Violence, yeah. Isaac catches sight of Derek in the background, but in the blink of an eye, he's gone. There's that cardboard cutout of Derek again. Okay, now, <laughs> I I thought that was kind of weird. It does look like a cardboard cutout, like in that shot. It like, it just looks like a cardboard cutout it, of him for it, it that does. shot. <laughs> I love it's it. ridiculous. That's how Derek shows up so many different places. He actually just has placed cardboard cutouts strategic at strategic locations. I like that. Unable to get more out of Isaac about the black eye, the sheriff finishes the interview by asking whether they often get grave robbers at the cemetery. Isaac says sometimes people take jewelry, but last night a liver was taken from a corpse and, I assume, eaten with some fava beans. And a nice Chianti. (laughs) (laughs) Group effort to make that joke. Yeah. Well done, us. Isaac is very impressive. He must be very much into like biology or human anatomy yeah the fact that he knew it was the liver i'm like actually side eye a little bit like what what have you been up to yeah how do you know that information i mean like i guess csi could have mentioned it but i feel like did you also read the script (laughs) (laughs) this is an instance where characters should hear something and then be like follow up (laughs) and then they don't (laughs) sheriff's like well i have no further questions son my work is done enjoy your morning lacrosse practice exactly when they say this it's it's the liver stuff right scott and Mm -hmm. styles hear about this being the liver stuff okay yeah scott and styles hear about the mutilated body at the cemetery and worry that lydia might have done it while wolfed out and here we see styles wearing the i support single mom shirt that i imagine mama mccall would have smacked him upside the head for and therefore he never wears it again Yep. Yeah. So Styles, uh, wearing a very thoughtless t-shirt, asks Scott what his mindset was when he was first turned. And Scott, unsurprisingly, says he couldn't think about anything but Allison. This leads them to believe that Lydia will search out Jackson, 
whom we see arrive in the school parking lot. Looking even douchier than normal. Yeah, he woke up on the douche side of the bed this morning and every morning. And every morning. And all right. Okay, buddy. That scarf, you're not like some photographer out in the Serengeti <laughs> or something. Okay. <laughs> you're in Beacon Hills. That's exactly Take that what shit he off. looks like, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's the look he's going for. Jackson encounters a homeless man in the parking lot, hands him a dollar, and tells him to go find another parking lot to die in. I assume oh, want my God. Man shoes on him. Should he bleed uh, everywhere? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> Terrible. That is awful. I remember Will reminding us about how Jackson had given money to a homeless person in one episode in the first season, but he neglected to mention the shitty thing Jackson said along with it. Yeah, because I neglected to remember that I'd forgotten it. <laughs> I do like his Jed Nelson fist as he's as Jackson's walking away though. Like I don't he, I don't know he's why also, he's doing this, but he does it. He he also is calling friend. for security. Yeah. He's he like, was like he was like that was my good deed for the day. Security. <laughs> he actually calls for security. That that yeah. wasn't a joke. He actually does that. I think I missed it because I was actually making the joke while watching it instead of paying <laughs> it. <laughs> That's fair. Fair. It's a good reference. Before their morning lacrosse practice, Coach Finstock informs the players that he'll give an A to any student who joins the search party and helps find Lydia, who is still missing. <laughs> you know, Coach can be pretty great sometimes. Yeah. I mean, not all the time, but you know. No, some sometimes. Some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think they could have had like a wacky sitcom that went alongside Teen Wolf of all like the teachers. Like, you know, they're, they're, like and them at the school like between stuff happening and you know just coaches antics Harris trying to date oh my god the thing happened just all that fun stuff the teachers oh, are thinking high yeah it was like NBC's it all takes place like in the teacher's lounge and oh every my god. episode's a bottle episode every episode's every a bottle episode, episode. yeah <clears throat> and you see like styles flailing in the background sometimes like outside the teacher's lounge window yep it, they're like did you guys forget to take all the sugar out of the vending machines oh no <laughs> <laughs> scott and styles try to talk to jackson about lydia but he thinks they should be less worried about lydia herself and more worried about what she might do to someone else based in part on the scratch marks she left on him when they were together Scott and Styles then get this look on their faces that says, I don't want to picture that in my head, but now I can't not. Oh, Jackson, his compassion has no end. Or beginning. <laughs> in chemistry class, Styles gets detention from a vindictive Mr. Harris. Jackson barely has time to enjoy Styles' misery because Danny points out that his nose is bleeding. It's bleeding black, like Jackson maybe forgot to change his oil. He rushes to the bathroom, only to be stalled by Derek. Initially, Derek wants to help because he considers Jackson to be part of his pack, to which Jackson responds with typical snark and insult, saying he doesn't want to be Derek's pet. You and Scott with the pet thing! I said pack, damn it! He should just have a t-shirt, or maybe a little brochure, make up a little brochure and hand it out. Yeah, this is what, <laughs> the cover this is what Alpha wants from you. <laughs> pack in huge letters. Not the no. same as a pet, you guys. Packs, not pets. Yeah. Maybe we could do like a little like intro video. Oh, <laughs> can you, can you imagine Derek trying to make a like recruitment you, video? Yeah. So. Be like, so you've been bitten. 
No, it would be, it, he would be like scowling at the floor. You said you wanted to be bitten, so I bit you. That means you're in my pack now. You're welcome. I'm, what is your, what is your jacket size? <laughs> Peter would do the really like cheesy ones of like, so you've been bitten. Yeah. Can you do finger guns during it? He would. Jackson's bravado fades away when he realizes that he's also starting to bleed black blood from his ears. Derek seems terrified of this and backs away slowly. He looks like the Homer Simpson gift where he's disappearing into the shrubs. <laughs> he like, does. He does. <laughs> Just like, nope, nope, yep. nope. He literally backs out of the conversation. Yeah. Should have been backflipping out of that conversation. Right. <laughs> that is more his style. It is. It is. Definitely. I feel like this movie's like, mm, changed my mind. I know you were rejecting me, but now I reject you. You're clearly broken. I- <laughs> it is kind of funny. I mean, that's like, that's so Jackson. You know, I've, I've made jokes previously with Derek that like, it's so Derek that he'll be like, I'm going to kill you. And then immediately like something actually puts their lives in danger. And he's like, hurry, run. I'll run into a hail of bullets so you can get away. That's just like classic Derek to me. Classic Jackson to me is like the opposite where he's like, I don't want to be in your pack. I have my own thing going on and I think you're stupid and poor. And then as soon as he realizes <laughs> he's like in a bad position, he's like, oh my God, what's happening? Derek, come back. After he just was like insulting him, he's like, oh, oh, my ears, help, what? And Derek's like, yeah, just two seconds ago, you were talking shit about like not wanting to be a pet when I repeatedly said pack. Yeah. Now I'm just, I'm just going to Homer Simpson write the f- out of this conversation and you can't stop me because you already rejected me. And according to Derek, all this black blood seems to mean that Jackson's body is fighting the bite, which is icky, but also icky. an interesting, it's an interesting addition to the werewolf mythology that it is. It's very cool. Your body Definitely. can fight it in quotes, whatever that means in some way. And that that's interesting because you know, I think we've mentioned before that like in other stories, you get bitten by something, you're now that thing. And this one, it's like, or your body works against it, like, all, you know, like it does against a virus or something. So that's that's interesting and fun and disgusting. I don't think that Derek would approve of that comparison. Well, I'm just saying that it's not a disease, Will. It's a gift. I'm just saying that's how the body works. Take it up with science, Derek. In the hallway, Allison goes to her locker and finds a love note from Scott, which makes her smile. Aw. Man, that advice from Mama McCall is really paying off. She gives the best advice. This is known. Say it again. Write it down. Say it differently. Say it louder. Hold a boombox over your head. (laughs) She sees Matt, a classmate, with a nice camera. And this is where we're beating him for the first time. He has a yellow card sticker in his locker, which feels right for what I come to find out about the character. He would have a yellow card sticker. After having this brief exchange with Matt, Allison overhears some girls talking about her and her crazy bitch, their words, Aunt Kate, though I don't disagree, which upsets her and sends her running into an empty classroom. I'm actually surprised that Allison doesn't get more shit from people about that. I know she's hot, but I think psycho killer aunt Trump's hot, even for teenagers. We never see anyone say shit to her face. 
And with Lydia gone, there's a power vacuum at Beacon Hills High. It's like when, like when Heather Chandler dies in Heather's, you know, and it's just like, oh shit, who's going to be the new queen? Yeah. I mean, so there's no one there to protect Allison from it. Like if Lydia was there, yeah, she'd definitely step in and be like, shut your mouth. And that would, it would just, that would be all it would take from Lydia. Maybe even just a snap of her fingers. One time Lydia Martin snapped her fingers at me. It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I, I do think it's a little weird because the, the, the snarky girls, as we'll call them, you know, they're talking about Kate and Kate's like a mass murderer. And they're like, Oh my God, you hear about the mass murderer she's related to. Oh, what a crazy bitch. You know, it just feels like, you mean the murderer at the, yeah, it just feels like crazy bitch is weird. Like a weird thing to call someone. Is that just me? I mean, there's, they're teenagers. I know. They, I, guess, they do, like, I, I think they say something about her, like being a serial killer. They just also say crazy bitch. Right. I don't, I just. It, is that one weird. of those girls, Harley? Maybe. The, uh, the no longer existent third friend <laughs> from the we, presentation that pilot, has yeah, yeah that ha- well she no she still oh, has she's a in the pilot in the That's pilot right. but she just didn't end up becoming a character really but i feel like she might be one of those girls maybe scott and styles rejecting her turned her into a mean girl well apparently they're huge nerds scott being a natural nerd styles being scarlet nerded by scott and so to be rejected by the bottom of the social pool is just, that's enough to send anybody over the edge. They're lucky she didn't become Harley Quinn. Oh, Kate's that would have right. been cool. It is. Oh, nice. Awesome. Bangarang. <laughs> in three episodes, uh, Wolf Moon, Pack Mentality, and Omega. Scott finds her and comforts her, telling her that it's okay to mourn Kate. Even if she wasn't who Allison thought she was, that doesn't mean Allison hasn't lost someone. Scott promises to come to the funeral, even though he'll have to hide from the family to avoid more friction. Which is strange because normally he's all about that friction with the Argents. Oh! oh. Second nice. Joke. Yeah. I'm actually, like, <laughs> I do really appreciate this moment from Scott, though. I feel like it's very insightful on his part that you can't just automatically turn off how you felt about someone, even after learning something terrible. Like, it you have to mourn also the person you thought they were. Right. Yeah. Scott is very perceptive and insightful when it benefits Allison. Yes. Yes. Because remember, there's also, you know, in the tell last season where she says, I'm turning 17, which means, you know, that she's a little bit older than some of her classmates. And he's like, oh, because you moved around a lot. And so you weren't able to, you know, complete a full year at a given school and it kind of set you back in your schoolwork and she's like yeah exactly that thing nobody ever gets it right on the first try they always say something shitty like did you get knocked up or like did you get held back or whatever and it's like yeah Scott can be really smart and empathetic and stuff it's just that he's so myopic that it has to be about Allison for him to apply that if it's Right. Styles or Derek or Lydia or Jackson or his own mom. A lot of times he's not as perceptive and compassionate. But when it comes to Allison, he is he is sharp. He's on point. He yeah. is on point. Styles ends up stuck in detention, not just for the customary hour, but for a full 90 minutes. Thanks to Mr. Harris's douchebaggery. 
<laughs> the teachers are so mean to poor Styles. And Scott. Remember Coach Finstock last season? Where he's just like, can you read, basically? Because he, like, hadn't done the reading. Like, he just kind of goes off because we find out in this scene that Mr. Harris wants to punish the sheriff by proxy through Styles for interrogating him about Kate Argent. And this makes no sense because Stalinsky in no way was mean or abusive to him the whole no. time in that scene. It's an interrogation scene, but it's not like an interrogation. It, it, it's not getting like a, grilled. Yeah. I feel like the only thing like, the only thing he does is like he corrects um, Harris whenever Harris says like arson, arsonist, and us uh, he said no, it was murder. Yeah, She's yeah, murder. and I, I do love what he says there. Where he says arson happens to things, yeah, but when it's people, it's murder. But and it still a- wasn't like he. Like, you know, did anything like he didn't berate he didn't, him or anything. Yeah, he, didn't, he, he just reminded him that there was the table and left. Right. Exactly. 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 Calm yeah. down, Adrian. Let's let's, <laughs> you know, get our shit together. Oh my God. Right. I feel like he was just such a coward during that scene. He's someone who I feel like is a coward in the moment, but then wants to like lash out later. But he yeah. can't do it with someone who's like his own size. So he's doing yeah. it to the teenagers who are under him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He yeah. is exactly Snape. It's a it's a power trip. Yeah. yeah. At the funeral, Chris and Victoria guide Allison through a swarm of people with cameras. The Beacon Hills paparazzi. And Victoria is, again, in what looks like a coat made out of a werewolf pelt. I still think this is a thing, and I love slash hate it. It's awesome. Yeah. Those... Those feelings, exactly. Yeah. Chris admits that this funeral was a bad idea. Victoria says it wasn't her idea. Chris says that he insisted on making a show of it, but won't tell Allison who he is. We soon find out who the elusive he is when Allison is reintroduced to her grandfather, Gerard, whom she hasn't seen since she was three years old. He notices Allison's classmate, Matt, whom we met earlier in the hallway, taking photos and being generally creepy and invasive towards the Argent family. And he breaks the memory card from Matt's camera with his hands. This is a great, great character introduction on this show. The show is full of great introductions, but this one's pretty, pretty great. Yeah, they definitely know how to introduce those Argents. Yeah. And then it, yeah. oh my God, it shows Gerard walking in slow motion. It looks so good. Michael Hogan is just like a complete badass. Just totally badass. And I find okay. it really interesting how he always calls his son Christopher. Mm. Christopher. Mm. I mean, they're they're at Gerard's daughter's funeral, mm-hmm. Chris's sister's funeral, and he's like, Christopher. I feel like he would have called her Catherine. I feel like that's just who he is. I hmm. could have seen that. If Allison does remember him at all, it's probably because he gave her a little rattle with like spikes on it. <laughs> yeah, like a medieval morning star, but you know, for babies. That is exactly the type of thing Gerard would do. Why did they go so long without seeing each other? They don't ever actually say on the show, I don't think, why there was such a long stretch of time that they weren't really in each other's lives. But my personal headcanon is that Chris, while he does believe in hunting and is generally kind of an asshole about it, he has always, like, part of him has always known that there's something 
off with Gerard and he didn't want um, Gerard's influence on Allison. And, and I feel like he realized that in a more like immediate way than he ever realized what was off with Kate. Like, I do think there were times where he, where part of him, part of his lizard brain was like, abort, this is mm-hmm. incorrect. But like, he had a little bit more of a relationship with her. And she she does have a charm to her. She's good at charming people. And I think she applied that to her own family, you know, to try to get them to overlook the warning signs flashing in their heads when she spoke to them. But with Gerard, Gerard is a lot more straightforward, mm-hmm. I think, um, than Kate is. So yeah, my my interpretation was that Chris kept up with hunting, but he didn't really want Gerard in Allison's life. I like that. Yeah. Like but also that, you know, when it's his sister's funeral, you can't exactly be like, dad, don't come. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gerard, you, you don't tell come. Him, yeah. <laughs> tell him it's on a Wednesday, really it's on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? He'd probably show up at the house with a machine gun. Probably. Scott recognizes Gerard and his posse for what they are, reinforcements. But then Sheriff Stolinski catches the boys hiding at the cemetery and drags them into the back seat of the squad car. From there, they overhear a call on the sheriff's radio about a disturbance in a car. Apparently something hit an ambulance with a dead-on arrival body inside, and now there's blood everywhere. Thinking it could be Lydia's handiwork, Scott and Stiles rush to the scene. Yeah, so, okay, the sheriff found Scott and Stiles at the cemetery after Stiles finally gets out of detention, puts them in the back of the squad car and then turns around and they're gone and the doors open. How did they get out of the back of the squad car? Yeah, that's not how that works. You can't do it. Trust me. I've been in the back of a squad car enough to know that you cannot get out of the back without being let out. They don't just turn that off and on for when a kid's riding in the car, unless my dad was just choosing to be an asshole, which I admit is possible. (laughs) Scott follows a scent from the crime scene. Scott's hair was so perfect in this episode. I know, he looks like Aladdin. Scott tracks down the scent and it turns out that it's not Lydia at all. It's the homeless man that Jackson saw in the earlier scene who's a roving werewolf. He's not from Beacon Hills, but he is of the lichen persuasion. Yes, it's very, it's, it's very cool. Um, I love how this scene starts because Scott races off into the night and then we get this incredible shot of Scott running like, I don't know what the frame rate was, but it's like running in super duper slow motion and he does leap into like the four, the, and, the, and we the, were like, the no. quad running, but it's like the lead up to that. It's like this incredible shot of him just running. You know, you got like the moon shafts of moonlight coming through the trees and he's running in super slow motion. Oh, it just looks amazing. It does. God, our show is beautiful. Until he goes on to all fours. Yeah. Back at the crime scene, Lydia shows up still naked, but also still sassy. She asks for a coat, which the sheriff gives her as Stiles just stumbles all over himself. That is, I do like that bit where he's like, I'll, I'll, I'll give the coat off my father's back. (laughs) (laughs) And Sheriff Stolinski is just like, get, get off. Just like 
sort of throws him off. He falls to the ground. You know, another fantastic opportunity to make Dylan O'Brien engage in some physical comedy. You could definitely um, feel like the secondhand embarrassment coming off Stalinsky. He's like, Jesus Christ. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I also, I really love um, Holland's delivery of that line when she mm-hmm. says, well, is someone going to give me a coat? Because yes, it's sassy, but it's also so like resigned. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like, this is the horrible situation I'm in. And the only option that I have for clinging to any shred of dignity is to dredge up the sass that feels very, very uh, deeply buried right now. It's just kind of like she has tears in her eyes and she's just like, well, is is anyone going to get me a coat? Yeah. She can't drape herself in clothes, so she will drape herself in sarcasm. Yeah. Which uh, looks good. Also, on her. it does look good on her, <laughs> and also uh, is a tactic that we've seen Styles used many times. So I'm sure mm-hmm. that he's able to uh, recognize her strategy here. Game recognize game. Yep, that's right. Before Scott can get more information from the werewolf he tracked, the werewolf gets caught in another tripwire trap. Derek shows up and drags Scott away just in time for both of them to get out of sight of the hunting party led by Gerard. The hunters interrogate the werewolf who came looking for the rumored alpha of Beacon Hills. Chris explains that this werewolf is a rare type, an omega or a lone wolf. This is a werewolf that has no alpha or pack. Gerard adds that omegas rarely survive on their own and then demonstrates this by performing a hemicorporectomy on the poor wolf with a sword while Derek and Scott look on in horror. The sword looks awesome, because it's a prop from Lord of the Rings. What? How did you not end up with that, Will? You're the biggest Lord of the Rings nerd. <laughs> I do not know. I just imagine Will, like, after the day was done shooting, but I guess you weren't actually on set for this one. Right. But, like, unfortunately. If you had been, I just imagine, like, you know, you'd be waddling and be, like, under your clothes, and you're like, nothing to see here. How did that happen? How did a sword, a prop sword from Lord of the Rings end up it, It's on not... It's not an actual prop from the movie. It's a replica. Oh, it's, a it's a replica. It's a sword okay. replica of Andrew Royal Flame of the West for Reforged from Shards of Narsal. But um nerd. Nerd, nerd, nerd. I wear it proudly. I'm proud <laughs> of this. Of your scarlet nerd letter? <laughs> yeah, my scarlet nerd letter. But yes, I don't know. I mean, I wish uh i wish i'd remember this when the show ended because i would have gone looking through the props department and been like is that sword still around here because if it is i'm asking for a friend i'm asking for a friend as they watch this horrific scene unfold derek who's still holding scott back whispers well it's a stage whisper but uh he, he he doesn't draw the attention of the hunters that's what matters and he tells scott this is what hunters do they kill unprompted They take down all werewolves, regardless of guilt. And this is them declaring war. Uh, And Scott replies, Derek, I'm sure he deserved it just like your family did. (laughs) Chris rebukes Gerard for failing to follow the code, leading Gerard to declare that there is no code anymore, not after Kate's death at the hands of a werewolf. Whether they're wounded and weak or begging for their lives, all werewolves will be found and killed. Got to black teen wolf. That was a great way to end the episode. It was so dramatic and chilling. 
Michael Hogan is very good with the button lines. He's like, oh, is this the end of the scene? I got it. I got it. I'll I'll take us right out. Yeah. And then, you know, we're we're like hearing his voice over images of characters on the show as well. So, you know, he's talking about weak and wounded. And we see Jackson with just like his room's just littered with everything that he's used to staunch the the bleeding, the the black blood. Um, And, you know, then he talks about begging for their lives and swearing that they would never hurt anyone that shows Scott and he's Scotty puppy. And he just like really wouldn't hurt anyone mostly, Um, you know, and then he's talking about, or, you know, maybe just someone who's really lost and doesn't fully understand what they're getting into and cuts to um, Isaac as he's walking into a location that we haven't seen before. Um, to find Derek and we're just seeing all these really vulnerable teenagers and then to have this voiceover that's saying like I don't care if they're begging for their lives I don't care if they're hurt I don't care if they're desperate and sad we are going to murder everyone and then it's like welcome to the second season yeah no it's great All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Omega, and now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the Alpha. We have a code. Not when they murder my daughter. No code. Not anymore. Now on, these things are just bodies waiting to be cut in half. We find them. We kill them. We kill them all. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with J.R. Bourne, who played Chris Argent on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. How did Teen Wolf come into your life? I originally got an audition for a sass role for Deaton. And I went in and read for Deaton and, um, and Jeff responded, gosh, I, I think it was really quite quickly. Um, the, that it was, you know, he wanted uh, to have me play Chris instead. And, um, and I know that they shot the pilot with someone else and I don't know if they couldn't do it or however that worked out. But um, so they recast uh, uh, me as Chris and we reshot those scenes for the pilot. And then, I dove in and I did not, I did not think it was going to be what it turned out to be. Throughout the first season though, I think we all had moments where we were like, oh, this is special. This is a really, and it was more for me, and I I won't speak for everyone else, but for me, it was, it was less about the show and more about the cast and the crew and just how, uh, I don't know. We just all clicked kind of right out of the gate. And it was like, Oh, this is, this is a family. This is, this, this is the type of thing that goes, you know what I mean? Because everybody's just so on the same page of, of, um, you know, not just there to tell a story, but where they're actually enjoying one another's company and having fun. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I mean, still to this day, I FaceTime with heck. I, Texted Heck the other day, I was, and uh, and just said, "Miss you, buddy." And he Facetimed, you know, almost immediately. He was sitting in his trailer. He's out there. Was he dressed as Superman? 
No. <laughs> she knows how much, but, you know, before he left, uh, before he left, before pandemic and everything, there was, uh, he helped me. He, he actually took one of my uh, uh, big dining room tables uh, and because I had bought a new one. So he took my big dining room table and we were getting on top of his thing. And I was like, just kind of watching. I was like, can you not just fly that thing on top of the roof? Like, I know you're Superman. <laughs> I can't look at him and not see Superman. I he can't. is just spot on perfect. Oh, my God. Right? Like, I mean, it's just... So uh, we all, obviously, all stay uh, still very much in touch. And, and Holland and I, we didn't get to do any scenes together, but we just worked together on, or, you know, worked on yeah, so that I've been cool. watching it. You are incredible on there. I haven't finished this season, but you are just incredible. My God, oh, I love it. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was very cool when they were like, Hey, Holland Roden or uh, Sarah's sister. I was like, Seriously, what is Timo taking over Mayans? I was like, oh, Okay, I was like, <laughs> Yeah, very, very cool. So, how did you feel about the original Teen Wolf movie? Have uh, you seen it? Were you a fan? You know, yes. I mean, obviously, I watched way back. You know, I'm older than all of you probably put together. Uh, Michael J. Fox, I mean, I, mean, I, you know, I, he was a staple for me when I was younger. What do you think growing up in Gerard's household was like? I don't think it was easy. I think that, you know, Gerard didn't grow into what we saw. I think that was a, a taste of what he was when we were kids as well. And, you know, the story with the Argents is the women are trained to be the leaders and the men are the hunters. I don't think Kate ever really cared to be a leader. I think she had the, you know what I mean? Whatever it originated as as a child, um, I think it was always about, you know, not even I want to be a hunter. I think she just, you know... I suspect she rebelled when she was younger, but yet we still loved one another. There was still a, a sibling, you know, but I don't think it was um, sibling, you know, camaraderie, but I don't think it was an easy household to, 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 um, to uh, be raised in. And I think that's what made, listen, it, it makes me go so deep into the backstory, you know, these questions, which is why I love them i think it's what sort of led to chris being who he was throughout the show you know what i mean um yeah why he was able to see things through a different lens the love for his daughter which i don't think they got from their father and you know as art can can mimic real life we got to break those cycles and i didn't want to be my father i didn't want the same relationship with with my daughter as as gerard had with us Nice. And to, to, to go off that, what you're saying right now, you know, at the beginning of season two, we learned that Allison hadn't actually seen Gerard since she was a child. Uh, do you think based on what you were just saying, Chris yes. intentionally kept them apart as a way to protect Allison? Uh, yes. I think that, I think that I had already, you know, probably, prior Allison even established a rift with my father. Um, I think that I had, you know, in order to break cycles, I had to distance myself from him, not the family. And I know what we were here, you know, what, what we're bred for and what our family history and ancestry is. I accept all of that. I 100% embrace it. But, uh, 
yeah, I think there was a, a purposeful sort of um, distance that, that I that I kept uh, between them, for sure. Season two starts with Kate's funeral. That's how we meet Gerard. Yeah. And uh, Chris is pretty characteristically stoic. Mm. How would you characterize Chris and Kate's relationship? Do you think he ever suspected the truth about her? I think even when there is uh, dysfunction, you know, between siblings or between parents and, and their children, love is still there. Chris, uh, Chris never stopped loving his father, his mother, his daughter, his sister. Um, and so I think there was pain and discomfort that that was, as far as he was concerned, or potentially, you know, that, that was never resolved between them or that things weren't resolved, whatever issues were um, between him and his sister. Did he suspect the truth about her? I don't know if that's maybe where the perceived sort of stories, stories that, say the word for me, guys. Stoicism. 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 <laughs> was that suspicion, you know what I mean? Was that fear? Mm. Our greatest fears tend to come true. So. Was that something that was just kind of brewing and stewing in his body that he didn't want to share with anybody? You know, Jeff always wrote stuff that was so layered for us. It wasn't just as, you know, a walk in the park. It was. Do you have any particular memories from filming season two that you'd like to share with us? I think there was, you know, definitely a feeling of <laughs> we, we, we've done something here. People, uh, this is this is a uh, okay, um, and 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 yeah, just just excited that we were back, excited that we were still going, and 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 quite honestly, I listen. I really was not sure what was going to happen with Chris. I I knew how he played in the first season. I I, I saw how it was being sort of um, the trajectory that he was on clearly. Um, and there was just, there was just something underneath it all for me. And I think that's everything that we've been sort of talking about already. Cause I, I love building that sort of backstory. And, and, and until, you know, Jeff comes up and says, you know, don't do what you're doing because it's the, you know what I mean? But he never did that. So mm -hmm. trying to slide in as much of, uh, um, I guess, where we saw Chris go in that first season, I was trying to do that. And so second season made me kind of feel like, all right, this actually, you know, um, is even more sort of interesting and appealing to do because it's, uh, it just feels um, even under the circumstances of werewolves and, and hunters, it's, it's still, there was something very uh, real about it. You know what I mean? That really lends itself to rewatching. I mean, we've rewatched it before. This is not even our second time watching Teen Wolf, but that's the great thing about something where so much thought and care was put into it, that every time you watch it, you kind of notice something different or you take away something a little bit different. Mm. And I think that's why people keep coming back. People who watch the show when it was on are still thinking and talking and writing about it and sending us messages. Wow. So, wow, that's yeah, cool. that's very cool. It is. It's wonderful. 
So you said it was hard to choose to answer this question, but did you have a favorite scene or episode Mm -hmm. to film? Or if it's easier to answer either one, did you have a favorite episode or season of the show overall? Whichever's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't know that there was a favorite season in its entirety for me. I, I, I loved doing them all. I really did. Uh, favorite episode. Um, there isn't one. There, there really just isn't one favorite episode. There are moments. I loved when, when Derek was Void Derek for a hot second in my office. My God. You know, yeah. That was a That's such an amazing scene. So much freaking fun. I loved the, the very first scene that, uh, um, the styles and I had in the, in the, you know, in first season, um, uh, uh, about, you know, slamming up against the freaking you know, wall there trying to, you know, get something out of him and, and the rebar, you know, Ian and I in the sewage, there's just moments throughout that were just either really fun or so difficult that they were just so enjoyable. You know, if that makes any sense. It does. I think it does. It's, it's just the, the, the experience may have been terrible, but it's like when you come out the other end of it. Yeah. When you come out the other end of it, 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 it the overall feeling. Yeah. 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 The loss of my daughter, that scene was freaking horrible. You know, when Allison died, but it, you know, also just an incredible sort of challenge in it. In other interviews we've done um, for the podcast, a lot of um, people talked about how young Tyler Posey and Dylan O'Brien were at the start of the show. What was it like watching the cast grow up over the course of six seasons? It was great. Yeah, and kept us young. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of us older. We, we, well, I'll just speak for me. I might have regressed a little bit as they were growing up. <laughs> but that was like very awesome. <laughs> let's, uh, let's just keep laughing. It was awesome. From your perspective, how do you think that Chris grew and changed over the course of six seasons? Mm, I think he always had possibly uh, doubts. You know, if we go back to his childhood with Gerard and and the way I think he saw things done when he was younger. I think there were always questions with him. That family dynamic, Allison falling in love with a werewolf, the whole thing I think just gave Chris the opportunity to sort of be like, yeah, I got a choice here and I'm going to choose to support this over here. And I'm going to try and see this because she's in love with him. I mean, like it's what, (laughs) you know, uh, (laughs) So, and it just continued and continued and continued and continued for him. It wasn't a, it wasn't a snap of a finger and Chris was like, got it figured out. Okay. Now we're allies. You know, he, it was a constant back and forth there. You know, I remember, uh, I forget what season it was. Was it fourth season or fifth season when they sort of Posey finds him or uh, Scott finds Chris and Chris is like, I'm not coming back. Like I, this, this world has decimated my world. I've lost my wife. I've lost my daughter. Remember when there was that whole struggle for him? So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, uh, all right, this is how it is now, but, um, you know, constant freaking struggle for him. But I think the start of it was changing the code. Like what his, you know, what his daughter said, we, we, uh, we protect those that cannot protect themselves rather than hunt those that hunt us. 
it's a better new code. Right? <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yes. So Chris goes through quite the emotional journey over the course of the entire series. What was it like finding a humanity for the character who at the beginning of the series is really a villain, you know, uh, or at least seen through the eyes of Scott and the other pack members who's a villain that they mm-hmm. have to deal with. Credit to Jeff. He still was a threat. Chris was still a threat. I mean, there was still that, you know, but the, the, again, the, the challenge it's so much more interesting to play someone who is, you know, um, not just out there to battle external forces that he's been, and, and that some need to be, but also an internal battle as well. And, um, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, I loved it. How did, how did I, how did I, I love doing it. Um, and how did I do it? I, I think just, you know, God will, it's a great question. I, the, the word, the, the scenes that are written, like what he's saying, and not just in every episode, but in the show and, and with the other characters. I mean, we all sort of mirror one another, you know what I mean? Like what Chris is going through, I think is also mirrored at times of what Posey is going through, what, I mean, what Scott is going through on some level, what, 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 um, Melissa's going through and through. everybody's kind of mirroring one another. If you just kind of boil it all down, you know, we're all kind of, yeah, figuring shit out, man. What is that compass? What is that? Except for, except for my sister and for Peter. <laughs> 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 They're just like, how do we, how else can we f- this up? <laughs> yeah. Did you ever have a discussion with Jeff, um, after Allison's death about like the fate of Chris and was there anything you wanted to do with the character that you didn't get a chance to pursue? I said, I, I wanted him to be like, you know, I thought Chris could be working on it because I ride motorcycles. I was like, I think Chris is probably like working on a Harley in the, in the garage just to keep himself distracted. And then we came in and like all the kids were riding dirt bikes and Chris wasn't riding. And I was like, that's not what, how did that get? What <laughs> I wanted to ride. You know, minds when, when that came around, I was like, do I ride a bike? They were like, no. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, <laughs> how do I not ride a bike? It's, it's Mayans. Yeah, no. Um, we get a lot of fake tattoos. We get a lot of tattoos. A lot of fake tattoos. Somebody asked me recently, they were like, hey, excuse me, are those tattoos real? I was like, no. No, no they're not. I do not have any, uh, no, I do not have any of those tattoos. Um, except for my real ones. Are there any characters you wish uh, you'd had more scenes with? Derek and I once, uh, Derek, Ty and I, Hecklin and I once talked about that. It would have been fun to have had some more stuff together. Um, the scenes with those two were great. Right? Yes. We just loved them. Great. Our first day on first season was together. We had our first scene and it was the last scene together. Like both of our last scenes were together. So the gas station in season one that was our my first day on set and i think it was hex as well and then season six our final day uh, his final scene and my final scene was also you know that 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 scene at the end so we were just like holy shit we had oh wow ended the whole thing amazing that's awesome faded yeah Yeah. there's been uh, you know a number of fans that sort of expressed to me 
you know, why Chris was impactful in their lives and, and they, you know, some shared a little more with me, some that didn't have the healthiest father daughter relationships and watching the show that, you know, that comforted them to see that relationship, which I thought was quite beautiful. Others shared that then they started watching it with their fathers and that that brought them together. Oh, wow. that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, really, really cool. And, um, and along that line, I remember, uh, gosh, I think it was, I think it was one of Kate's birthday, uh, Jill's birthday parties. And we were all going out sailing. I think it was Jill's birthday party or Ian's. And we were all going out sailing. And I was trying to find the boat at the dock. And I stopped at an older gentleman who seriously was part of the <laughs> 60s, early 70s, big hair, white beard, uh, just looked like a captain of a boat. Like he just was awesome. And I was like, excuse me. And he was like, yeah. He had these dark sunglasses and a really cool cat. And I was like, you know, do you know what Pierre so and so is? And he was like, I do. I do. <laughs> familiar. And I was like, oh, and I'm thinking, Stargate. His age, demographic. <laughs> that's just, that's you know. And he was like, why? Why do I know? And I was like, oh, Stargate asked you when he goes. No, I don't watch that show. And I was like, uh, and he was like, I know. He goes, Teen Wolf. And I went, Nope, you are not our demographic. <laughs> <laughs> really, I was like, No, this is not possible. And then he shared with me that he uh, he has his granddaughter on the weekends, and they're oh. Always watched Teen Wolf together, and I was like, "God damn it!" I was like, "That's so cool!" And he loved the freaking show, loved the time he got to spend with his granddaughter, loved how much she was into it. He said, "But it's a good show. You guys do a good job." And I was like, "That's amazing! <laughs> I was like, that's so cool!" Yeah, that's oh, wonderful. That's a great story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was another woman, Eden, and I bumped into her at Sunset. <laughs> Oh my god! I forgot about and she. She came out of. She she came out of. She had like four kids with her. She recognized us first, and then her kids probably ranged from like. You know, I'd say sixteen, seventeen, maybe twelve, nine, and then like a four-year-old. And they all watched the show, including the four-year-old. And he and I were like, nope, nope. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> you're too young. <laughs> you're too young. Yeah, the whole family. Very, very cool. Yeah, we we got a good uh, we got a good family there with our fans. Incredible. In uh, Jr. In season two, we learned that when bitten, a person doesn't necessarily become a werewolf. Um, the shape they take is a reflection of the person they are. Had Chris been bitten, what kind of supernatural creature do you think he would have been? I think that there would have been two different supernatural, depending on where it happened in the season. I think after Allison died, I think it would have been something different that came out of him that may have manifested versus before Allison died. So um, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it would have. Yeah, that's been, a really interesting idea. Right. I think the pain. I yeah. think whatever, because he compartmentalizes. There's, he even has the scene with with Scott outside of you know, and he's like. You compartmentalize. That's something my father taught me. That's what we, that's what we do. Compartmentalize pain. Compartmentalize trauma. Um, so I think whatever we saw Chris struggle with over the six seasons, a bite would have amplified that. I think on both sides, and and 
because compartmentalizing uh, trauma and pain is not the thing to do, that probably would have been the higher of the two. So, you know, I, I don't know that his moral compass and his um, ability to, to, to love and accept would have overpowered. I think that would have been the biggest struggle, which is what excited me and why I wanted it. Cause I was like, oh, that's awesome. Okay. That would have been, that would have been really interesting. interesting. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause Chris, <laughs> God, he loses so much over the course of this show. It's just, it's, yeah, then, but then it would have been like, who would have been the one to, 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 to help him? You know what I mean? And then it would have been so sweet. Yeah, when, uh, you know when he came around, Derek, Derek, or I think, Peter, right? Maybe it would have been. Maybe he. Maybe it would have been what you know pushed Peter to the other side, and Peter would have like realized that he was in love with Chris, and, and then everything the power to save him. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I would watch the shit out of that. Yeah, just yeah, just just well, take my money on. right Let's now. Get, get <laughs> there are a lot of peter chris shippers yeah. on the internet well that actually leads well into the next question who is your favorite villain of the show well i have to say Pete, because bobo if you know if you ever see this would be really upset but uh if i didn't say bobo if i didn't say <laughs> bobo Pete, uh <laughs> um he gets so offended I did a big pick drop on the 10th year anniversary of these other days. And I did like 40 pictures and videos and just like literally whatever's on my phone. I put out there for them. And I didn't even realize, but Bobo wasn't in, you know, pictures of Bo wasn't into the last sort of uh, thing. And um, he was pissed. He was just like, what is happening right now? And I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm not a big fan of, of you know, going through the comments just because, although whatever, that, the, the first ones that sort of come up, you know what I mean? As soon mm -hmm. as you, those were, those was mm -hmm. always there on every page, on the, on the three pages. And you just was like, <laughs> where is my, where is my, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm okay now. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I thought the Nagitsune was a really dope uh, uh, villain. I just, the whole, the whole Void, the Void styles, it was, you know, Void Derek, and we got to have that scene. That's that something I guess it was a, mm -hmm. was a very, you know, ancient, badass kind of a villain. So what were the ones, what were the ones on the horses? The the, the Ghost Riders. Wild Hunt. Ghost Riders. Wild Hunt, yeah. yeah. The Ghost Riders, those were kind of good too, also because it led to Melissa and I kissing. Sorry. So this is obviously a Teen Wolf podcast, but I wanted to find a way to work in a question about 13 Ghosts because it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> so how did roles in movies, horror movies like 13 Ghosts and uh, Ginger Snaps of uh, the beginning uh, prepare you for a role in a show like Teen Wolf? Gosh, it's an interesting question because it's made me look at them differently. I played a lot of bad guys, as you all know. Quote, unquote, we call them bad guys. You know what I mean? Or villains, or what have you, and and I've always sort of enjoyed playing those guys, but but finding the humanity in them, and, and whereas you know whether, at least for me as a as a as an actor to play that more than just a bad guy, do you know what I mean? Uh, is boring. Mm -hmm. Those two characters, I kind of feel like they were just bad guys. I don't know <laughs> that the guy in Thirteen Ghosts, that freaking dude, that lawyer. There was, he just was, he really was. That was just leaning into, that's, that guy was a slime ball, man. He had it coming. Um, 
And such a great death, though. Oh my <laughs> so god, so good, so memorable. Is, like, yeah, legit, my favorite. You know, the whole sliding down. Uh, uh, one of my favorite death scenes, by far, if not. Um, and and Ginger snaps back. Same guy, man. Uh, I remember he always kind of had food stuck in his teeth. It felt like I was always trying to get something. <laughs> back in those times, they didn't have dental floss. He was, uh, yeah, he wasn't a good guy. That he wasn't someone that dug deep and tried to sort of. He wasn't trying to figure out any moral compass. Um, I don't know that either of those characters prepped me for Chris. Because <laughs> Chris is Chris is not smarmy. Even no. when he was villainous, he was, he was keeping the class. Yeah, very classy. Yeah, yeah, but that's great. I've never looked back at those two characters like that, Chris. So that's a, a great question. If Teen Wolf were ever to come back in some way, besides taking over the cast of Mayans, would you be interested in coming back? And if so, what would you want to happen with Chris mm -hmm. Argent? I, I don't know how I how I, I I don't know how I couldn't come back with that group and we would do it again. I, I think it would it would just be uh, an amazing sort of uh, experience for us, obviously and an incredible new chapter. I would hope that Melissa and I would still be together. I would hope that that would be a whole new sort of journey for them, um, you know, within our own little world. What, you know, what would they have to unravel between the two of them? What would they have to sort of process between? Spin-off. Right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it would really be where everybody is at. You know, where's Scott? What's happening with him? Where's, if we all came back, come on, Derek, everybody, you know, except my dad, because he's really dramatic. <laughs> he's mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather hear what y'all would like to see happen. I think that would be more interesting. Well, now I'm super into the idea of him getting bitten. I can't unthink about that yeah. sequence of events. And then Melissa would have to deal with that. And then <gasps> she would have to deal with that as well. <gasps> It'd be fun. It would That'd be, be really fun. Right? I need it in my life now. Is there yes, like, me too. The, the battle of not, because when we find them, he's in love. I mean, finally his heart is being, you know what I mean, with Melissa. So then, oh yeah, so good. All right, good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm going to email Jeff right when we we're done this call. Seen, yeah, just write that email right now. Yeah. We have right. seen Melissa on the show reanimate a heart that stopped beating. So I'm sure she could do that for him. Right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I have two hearts. Maybe that would be my supernatural. Four hearts. There you go. My wife. Keep adding hearts. My yeah. daughters. My father. Yeah, he's just all the hearts he's lost, he embodies them in his body. We I'm down. I'm down for this. It's, it's writing itself. <laughs> yep. What else? Uh, as I was saying uh, before, you have just had such an amazing career, played all sorts of characters. What kind of role would you like to tackle next? And is there a genre that you prefer doing more than others? Hmm. Uh... No, I don't think there's a genre. I enjoy all the genres I've got to play, and I really have. I haven't played in the in the comedy realm or the the even the sort of you know uh, uh, 
yeah, just a little lighter maybe. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's one thing out there that I feel like I haven't done yet and that I'm sort of, um, yeah, but there's not one out there that I'm just like, you know, um, I feel like I've missed out on or that I haven't done yet. Um, no, no, I kind of love whatever comes on the pipeline for me. Like nice. Well, I'm excited to see whatever's next for you. Thank you. Me too. Me too. So, so I really want to see hospitality. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. um, the one, right? I, yeah, I haven't got a chance to watch it yet, but I'm very excited to see it. Yeah, with Emmanuel, who plays Lana Lang on Superman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. she's a great actress. She yep. is great. She's amazing. One of my oldest friends. We did one of our first jobs together. One of my first jobs we did together in Vancouver. Um, but yeah, hospitality, that was a fun one too. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not it's fun. Not, but yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, what was your first role with her? I was just curious. Mm, we did, I don't know if we did a play. We did a play, one of Raphael Silva's play uh, uh, called El Salvador. And then we did a movie together called Future Sport. And I don't know which came first. I feel like the play may have come first. And then we did Future Sport. Um, and so, yeah, that's that was really, really early on in Vancouver. And then she moved here well before I did, but we've always remained friends. Oh, yeah. nice. That's wonderful. Even with Team Wolf being over for four years, there are new fans discovering the show every day. JR, do you have any sort of message you'd like to share with these new fans? No, I think just thank you. I think just, uh, you know, a big, huge freaking thank you for, for uh, you know, newly tuning in and hopefully loving it. Or to the uh, our previous ones, our originals, the OGs, who have just stood by our sides, you know, through fundraisers and charities and our supports and, and, and our, you know, careers that they followed. It's just, you know, we're like, it's a, it's a, an incredible family. I think that's it. I don't have any advice. Popcorn. T uh, yes. Always have tissues when you watch, right? That's good advice. Yeah. yeah that's that good advice. Is very good advice. Popcorn and tissue just simultaneously. Well, JR, are there any upcoming projects you can tell us about to kind of, uh, mm. Have, so we have something to look forward to? Uh, I'd say go watch mine, season three. It's on Hulu, uh, most definitely. It, it, nice. you know, it's, it is, uh, yeah, I'd say that for sure. Thank you so much. You're so welcome, Will, Kate, Calista. It was a great sort of trip down memory lane. Um, it, you know, it was special. I think we all sort of know that. And, and uh, you know, we've got, you know, long-term friends out of it and, and new ones being made constantly. So thanks for doing this guys. Lots of love to you all. We had a great time talking with JR and hope we can get him on the podcast again, but we do still have some spoilers to talk about for this episode. So let's jump in. Man, Lydia goes through some shit this season and we've just scratched the surface in this episode. Yes. Yeah. I love Lydia. The start of actually giving Lydia a really interesting storyline like I, I still loved Lydia in season one but so much of it was just surface Lydia mm -hmm. and this work really getting into her yeah as a character and like getting past all the fake walls she puts up of just like her makeup and her clothes and everything and now we're getting into 
literally we get past her makeup and clothes she does not have those things in this episode which we do get a little bit of that in season one especially with the tell and in a couple moments but this is where this is where her arc starts though definitely this is where her trajectory of character growth really kicks into high gear and we start to see um not just who she is but who she's becoming Mm-hmm. I want to know so much more about the Peter Lydia thing. Like it, it's such a fascinating dynamic, but I feel like we just don't get fully satisfying answers to how it worked. We don't yeah. get any answer. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we get Peter saying, making these sort of general remarks that, you know, he, where will he be big as hell? <laughs> That he, you know, that he kickstarted something in Lydia that he awakened her banshee abilities. Um, we know that he bit Lydia specifically as kind of a contingency plan so that if he did die, he could use this connection that he forged with her to... to... It's the werewolf her Horcrux. Yeah, it basically yeah. is. But the thing is, of course, in Harry Potter, we get lots of deets about how Horcruxes yes. work. It's like... How did he know how to make Horcruxes from this guy? We're going to talk to him at length. Like there's so much delving into like, how many are there? Here's how many. How do you know which objects they are? Here's how. How do you destroy them? You know, there's like, there's so much detail there. And we just don't get anything approaching that with Teen Wolf. No one even really asks, how does that work? Nobody even really asks like, okay, so you said the thing about, awakening those abilities in her did you know she was a banshee the whole time at what point did you realize she was a banshee and how yeah did she have to be a banshee to bring you back or could it have been anyone did it have to be someone with like latent abilities that are somehow related to life and death to make that work or is it technically possible for any alpha to bite someone and basically, like you said, Calissa, turned them into a horcrux. And then as right. long as their own physical body wasn't totally destroyed, they can then use that connection to come back to the world of the living. Is yeah. that something that any alpha could do if they're an asshole? Yeah. You know? And then like, did did he need to torture her mentally throughout the season before he could come back? Was that just to make sure that he could manipulate her fully into doing the powder thing is it like, just that peter's an asshole is it just that peter like there's so much about like, it that we don't ever learn like kate didn't fully need to do everything she did i believe right to set the hail fire she did not need to do everything to Derek. and i just wonder yeah this is another situation did peter need to do all of this to lydia is it just that he's a monster like kate yeah I really like the idea of being able to like imprint your soul onto somebody. Uh, I think that's really cool and definitely better than the imprinting in Twilight. So nobody falls in love with weird looking babies. I wish we had delved into this a little bit more. And I really, my head canon is, and supported by nothing, but my (laughs) head canon is that this thing is very rare and difficult. And it's like a Hail Mary. Like this isn't a, a... a hail oh mary. yeah 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 yeah. i didn't even think about that when i was saying it yes it's Self-fied. a hail mary 
it's a but it's like a hail mary thing and um and it's kind of like a not even a 50 50 thing like maybe it's like a 95 5 thing uh because like i mean if she had turned into a werewolf would it still have worked you know because you know so like i like the idea that like this is a last resort hail mary type thing if you think you're gonna die um and you are basically turning a person into a horcrux that you can then get your soul out of type of thing um i wish we had it would have been if it had been super difficult and all this maybe we could have brought it back like in a later season like in five or six like when everyone's forgotten about this thing it's like oh hey remember that thing we did once and you thought we'd never come back it came back well but we didn't i mean I'm I'm just kind of shocked that nobody tried to grill Peter for details. First of all, Lydia didn't, which is the strangest thing because Lydia, we do have moments later where Lydia does talk to Peter and does acknowledge this bizarre and on his end, very abusive relationship that they have. Um, but there's not, it's not asking for details, which to me really doesn't make sense to Lyd- for Lydia as a character, because this is the same character who got bored with classical Latin. Yeah. See, so it, she likes knowledge. Yeah. She does. And I think she believes knowledge is pow- power, which, you know, it is. But I actually believe that she wouldn't ask Peter. And the reason why is... I feel like she never wants to make herself vulnerable to him again. And by asking it, she's saying, I want this information. I want something from you. Mm-hmm. But they do that. The thing is they do that later though. Like that's what I was referencing. They have scenes of like Lydia asking Peter for information. But it's information relevant to the plot actually happening in that yeah, it's story. Like Not- necessary to like, yeah, the situation to, like, save people. When it's just, I feel like, about her, she doesn't want to... I feel like she's able to, like, separate it more from, like... Herself. Herself, whereas, like, she's asking and, like, kind of, like, bringing up, like, a shared intimacy that they had. That's true. It's very different than being, like, I have to ask you about this because you're the asshole that probably knows about it. Tell me what I need to know so I can get out of here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he'd want to draw it out and make it like something very like re-traumatizing. Yeah. Um, and I feel like she just knows she wouldn't get what she wants. And he's also a liar. And I think she knows that like she could ask, but she wouldn't know if he was telling her the truth. Yeah. So it's kind of just like, I think <clears throat> she would weigh the pros and the cons and decide that it's not worth re-traumatizing herself and potentially just coming out with a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. I do really like your point, Calissa, about it almost brings up this shared intimacy. And that's a really terrifying thought. I think that's a really eloquent way to put it. Um, That being said, I feel like someone should have asked him about it because they they have loved ones just dropping like flies. And you really want to tell me that they never tried to ask how does necromancy work? That would have been interesting, especially if like, now that that's interesting. I, cause I, I would of course want to go the sort the more tragic route or something, but where it's like, 
because you're right, we lose a lot of people on this show. And for someone to be like, hey, remember that thing you did? Tell us how you did it. And he's like, well, werewolves do that. Like this, is, I we didn't bring someone back from the dead. Like I did something to someone else, type of thing. And and that's something that we could have dealt with, you know, a little bit because, you know, talking about like consequences, where it's like Scott never deals with consequences. Like that's right. never brought up. And we could have had where it's like, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, where someone. I don't know how we would get to this, but they're like, we need a wolf character who's going to die to imprint themselves on somebody like this needs to happen. And then they go to Peter and he kind of tells them how to do it. But the come out is, is like, you are going to psychologically torture another person to do this thing. And then, and then like, well, it can't be that bad. And Lydia's like, <clears throat> you know, let me tell you how bad it is. You know, or, and that's at least a good dilemma. Like that's fantastic where it's like, you're going to, a character's going to die. We can save them, but you are going to psychologically torture this person who becomes a Horcrux for them. And it, it lives with you forever. Like this person. To which Derek responds, I'll do it. Oh yeah, exactly. Of course he would be like, Oh, I got this. I got this. Inject me. Let's go. But, um, or, you know, but that's great though, because it, I mean, that's just great story drama where it's, again, it's, we need to do something, but the cost is very high which means we need to deliberate and someone there has to be tragedy here and all this, which I, I just love, but um, yeah. So I actually think it would have been really interesting that if like, you know, this were something that happened way later, Scott has a pack mm -hmm. and there's like a whole episode that's basically just 12 angry men of mm -hmm. them deliberating over this very serious issue that could solve a lot of problems and literally save lives but also maybe destroy them a little bit. Yeah. And you would have different characters like making arguments and forming little alliance, ethical alliances of like, okay, but I really think we should do this. And here's why. And we had to learn more about every character and how they've experienced loss in the past. Yeah. And it could be a bottle episode that saves everybody a bunch of money, but it's just like pure character shit. Yeah. No, that'd be fun. That would be fun. And Derek would totally be the person to do it. I mean, he would just do it behind everyone's back. He would just be like, oh, I did it. It's like, why? Because y'all debated for 42 minutes. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> I like the idea definitely about the imprint, but it's strange that no one really asked more questions about it. We get a whole episode that's like, here's part of Derek's backstory with this girl we've never met, yet we get no details about how Peter's backup plan worked. I agree with you. It It is one of those things where like sometimes, sometimes Teen Wolf will devote like, a really long amount of time to something that I'm like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> and other and other times it's like, you know, like uh, something like this, which is to your point, Will, world breaking. I mean, this is something that drastically moves the goalposts of the parameters that define this narrative universe. And it's like, okay, well that's over. Peter's back. And I'm like, wow. Um, we need to pump the brakes like for real because you have not told me anything about this very important magical mechanic yeah. that cheats death. And it's the biggest death cheat of all the death cheats that occur on the show because it's one that purely involves someone being fully dead. Mm-hmm. And being resurrected, 
resurrected. It's not yeah. like, oh, we thought they were dead, but they're actually not, or they were briefly dead, but they were brought back through recognized medical methods. Like, no, yeah. this was fully a necromantic endeavor that occurred here. Yeah. Why are we not talking about this? That's a game changer. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, I, uh, uh, Peter and Lydia should have merged a little bit psychologically, like that maybe they each got something from each other in a way um that would have been interesting like like lydia can she's already a manipulator but um a little bit more you know or something i don't know you know where they just each are getting a little bit of each other in some way where that's kind of like a side effect because you were basically merged together for some amount of time and the longer it happens before the person comes back the more it become the more you merge but I actually saw quite a few. Lydia just um, wears V-necks. <laughs> uh, very nerdy um, analyses that sort of interpreted the storyline as um, a modern retelling of the myth of Hades and Persephone. Mm-hmm. That he, during his time in the underworld, mm-hmm. so to speak, he has taken her unwillingly with him yeah and so now she has this sort of descent into madness rather than a literal descent into Mm -hmm. hades um i really like that it's an interesting idea and particularly because in the myth there's really no it's just explaining how winter works like persephone doesn't have any agency in that story and well, frankly, Lydia doesn't have a lot of agency in this season, but she goes on to gain it. Yeah. And so when you look at her arc from like a broader perspective that sees it over the course of multiple seasons, um, you can really see how she sort of wrestled her agency back from the tight death rictus claws of the narrative that mm-hmm. tried really hard to keep it from her for quite some yeah. time. Um, and I, I do really like that. And there's a lot of beautiful kind of classical imagery with them in this season. Not a lot of like concrete discussion. Yeah. It's filmed beautifully. Nobody will talk about it. So the first episode of this season is titled Omega, but this isn't the first time we've heard Omegas brought up in the Teen Wolf universe. Yeah, it's interesting after having watched Search for a Cure, where we get technically the the first discussion of Omegas. Yeah. In terms of where it falls in the timeline, the actual earliest discussion we have is in Search for a Cure, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And Dr. Fenris. Yes, not Wolfman. Dr. Fenris Fenris, uh, is talking about the pack structure and he says there are alphas, betas, and even omegas. The pack bitch Mm -hmm. is, you know, contributing to this celebration that they have. But so he, he makes it sound like omegas are part of a pack. They're just kind of lowest on the hierarchy. But this episode has a very different take because it's very clear when Gerard and Chris are talking about Omegas that 
an omega is not part of a pack. Yeah. That is right. actually what defines an omega. They don't have a pack. They don't have an alpha. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting departure. And I feel like this works better, which yeah. we talked a little bit about when we were discussing Search for a Cure, that it's a little more generous and interpretation for werewolf culture because if it were this sort of like social darwinism that's like yeah you're just the bitch we just like yeah. treat you like shit i like it better that it's like no an omega is how they describe someone who is now alone for yeah. whatever reason yeah um but it also makes you realize that when uh, Derek in season one says that he and Scott are betas. That is not totally true. Yeah. Yeah. He is an omega. Yeah. They just hadn't really figured out how the hierarchy was. They didn't figure out what the hierarchy was yet. Like it just wasn't relevant to the story. So I don't, they just didn't delve into it enough yet until between seasons when they were breaking season two. Oh, in my head canon though, I'll just say that he, he said we're betas because he just lost Laura. So like yeah. in his in his mind, he's a beta. He had yeah. an alpha until yeah. like two days ago, yeah. you know. Um, and he is right that Scott is a beta because at that point, Scott hasn't fully broken the sort of instinctive connection that he yeah. has with his alpha. So he would, I think, still be considered a beta. But yeah, poor Derek is actually an omega in yeah one. yeah the lone wolf <laughs> i like that we get an introduction to the new location that's going to be uh derek's new lair you know the hail house a little played out so we're moving to the oh, ye old I'm... abandoned train factory <laughs> i will always stand the hail house I, hail house everything could great. happen at the hail house and i'd be yes. cool with it hail house is yes. great i had a lot of ideas for it's my so beacon full hills. of unprocessed emotion yes so much unprocessed emotion in different interesting rooms that i i had ideas for for when i was working on that beacon hills pilot where because you're going to see like the hail family in their glory and like the hell house is this awesome you know victorian sort of gothic structure and it just looks amazing it's out there in the preserve and yeah <clears throat> I have so many feelings about the Hale family, except Peter, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but I have so many feelings about the other Hales. Yes, no, no, no. Families, family, families are fun. Family dynamics are good, you know, and we get some new family dynamics in this episode when we are introduced to Gerard. And I like I like the idea that the the Argents. You know, they come from France, as we learn, you know, we've we've learned already. But, you know, later in the Made of Jevenon episode, we get to see the the OG Argents, if you will, in France. L'original. There you go. Um, and but I like the idea that at some point the Argents uh, left Europe for whatever reason and immigrated over to Canada, to Quebec, if you will. And uh, we're French Canadian for a bit because both Michael Hogan and J.R. Bourne are Canadian. And I feel like it, it, I don't think they really hide it in their voices. I think they do American-ish accents, but it comes out, especially with Michael Hogan sometimes, but I love it. I'm like, go for it. I don't, I don't care. You know, so I like the idea that, that the Argents are, are Canadian. They yeah. definitely yeah. left Europe because they successfully just killed so many werewolves. It was like, well, that's done. The new world it is. So The new world. 
full of new werewolves to kill. Exactly. So, yeah, I like that idea. But, you know, fun stuff. Fun stuff. I'd like to see another story about other Argents making, you know, Canada in the 1800s their stomping grounds and and all this. That'd be kind of fun. Just nothing but timber forever, you know, and just vast spaces and monsters. Be fun. Be a lot of fun. You definitely think so. I do definitely think so. Thank you. <laughs> so they leave the werewolf guy like strung up, cut in half and everything. And it reminded me of the story that Barbara told about uh, <laughs> I knew where this was going. And Tyler Posey smashing the giant roach and leaving the corpse there to warn away oh. other roaches. And I feel like that's what the hunters were doing. And it worked because we don't have any other Omegas come looking for Derek. Oh my God. That is actually a really apt comparison. And the worst <laughs> part is that Gerard and his cohorts probably see supernatural people as vermin Arches, to yeah. be exterminated. Yeah, they do. They do. They do. Oh I knew God. exactly where you were going. The moment <laughs> you start, I was like, <laughs> and it, but it's hey, it's a great comparison. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As soon as you said yeah. they they left it there, which I was like, oh shit, they did. Yeah, you're totally right. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Barbara, for that priceless story. Yes, priceless. Right. Please come back on the show. <laughs> that concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to beacon hills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss season two, episode two, Shape Shifted, and talk to episode director Russell Mulcahy about introducing a new mythology to the world of Teen Wolf. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five star reviews get a shout out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.